0: Hey everybody, welcome, welcome to show 60 on crypto voices. Matthew is your host here from Latvia, joined with my co-host friend Ulrich from Brazil.
1: Hello, Matthew.
0: And today we are going to introduce our special guest, Dr. Lamont Black. Dr. Black is assistant professor of finance at DePaul University in Chicago. Uh, before that, he was an economist at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors in DC for eight years. Uh, At DePaul, Dr. Black teaches undergraduate and graduate courses on finance, money, and banking, and also has the interesting distinction of being the first professor there to formally introduce Bitcoin and crypto into business courses. So very excited to talk with him today. Uh, Lamont, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, really happy to have you here. So I think we should just... uh, start off with your background a bit. Again, I think it's really interesting that uh, you are our first guest who directly served uh, as an economist at the Federal Reserve. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, your background, and and how you made your way to DePaul.
2: Sure. So um, I did my graduate work at Indiana University and um, started studying banking there. Uh, originally, my interest was in Development economics, but the more I studied the role of banks in development, the more I started to focus directly on the banking system. And then um, it was actually a dissertation internship in the summer of 2005 that took me to DC uh, to the Board of Governors of the Fed. And uh, I like to tell my students that 2005 was uh, for the very end of Alan Greenspan's era as the, uh, chairman of the Fed. And so I was able to go to his going away party and shake his hand and wish him well. And then, uh, shortly thereafter went to the swearing in ceremony for Ben Bernanke under George W. Bush. And, um, originally I thought that, um, I might be returning to graduate school, but um, fortunately, they made me an offer to stay. And so uh, I was a Federal Reserve economist from 2005 all the way to 2013. And so um, during the heart of the crisis, 2008, 2009, uh, I was part of a group focusing on the banking sector trying to monitor risks, and also study different regulatory policies, different government responses to the crisis. Uh, in particular, some of my work is on uh, TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, and the bank capital injections. Also studied the um, programs, the liquidity programs in which banks borrow directly from the Fed, like the... Um, uh, discount window and TAF programs, and uh, and then worked some on Dodd-Frank implementation um, following the crisis. And then ultimately, the last few years, I was in the international finance division of the board, uh, focused on European banks, really during the heart of the sovereign debt crisis in Europe. And so um, it was a great experience. Uh, Learned a lot while I was there, uh, but then in 2013, decided it was time to to try something different, and so uh, started looking around at some academic teaching jobs. Ended up here in Chicago at DePaul University, and it's been a great fit because I teach money and banking, uh, many of the things that I worked on, both at the undergraduate and graduate level, and uh, so I'm able to bring some of that experience into the classroom and also talk about New emerging topics, uh, obviously, like cryptocurrency, and uh, it's been a great fit,
0: yeah, very nice. And I think um it's really interesting uh, again that that uh, you have had that time at the Fed. You know I think for a lot of people in Bitcoin, and it's uh, for us as well as Bitcoin podcasters, <laughs> and I mentioned this to you before the show, you know it's it's sort of an elephant in the room thing, you know, talking about the Fed and central banks themselves when you compare it to Bitcoin. Uh, so, I guess first question: You know, when you were at the Fed and 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 you left the Fed, which I guess was uh, 2013, did anyone take Bitcoin seriously at all, or or know what it was, or or uh, do much uh, discussion about it?
2: You know, I would say at that point in time, there wasn't much discussion about it. Um, I don't have any distinct memories of people either showing extreme interest in it or. Any sort of alarm or concern. I think it was viewed more as sort of a curiosity, uh, fairly marginal. Um, Mm. So for me, it was, uh, I think it was really when I started teaching and in particular working with millennials, you know, younger students who were very excited about this uh, all the way back in 2013, where it was my students really pushing me to to talk more about it, to learn more about it, um, because some of my students back then were already mining. Some of them were uh, buying and trading crypto. And so when I would talk about money and the definitions of money in the classroom, you know, they would immediately... Uh, raise the point of you know well what about Bitcoin and, and how does that relate to to these more traditional topics nice so in terms of the fed and uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies I think it's really been an evolution of thinking over over the last few years uh, and if if your listeners aren't aware the Federal Reserve has put out a white paper on distributed ledger technology. Um, This was now a few years ago, and it was really a a group of people from not just the Board of Governors in D.C., but other economists uh, across the Fed system, including the New York Fed, who really tried to put down on paper their thoughts about this technology both as it relates to cryptocurrency but also to uh, other applications in the banking system there's a lot of discussion about blockchain applications for like settlement and clearing of financial transactions um and so i think over the last few years the fed has been thinking a lot more about this and exploring it um both from the currency perspective and from the blockchain perspective but i think it's still a bit of a uh, watch, observe, a bit of wait and see to see how the technology develops.
1: Yes, and from an economic perspective, it's interesting to see how, when when we consider the different lines of thought or economic schools, like you have the Austrian school, you have Keynes, you have modern macro, it, it seems to me that the most the austrians tend to analyze with a more let's say positive notes cryptocurrencies and bitcoin and bitcoin tend to be tends to be dismissed by the other economists so how do you think and how do you see these ideas from the so-called austrian school of economics like frederick hayek and ludwig von mises are these ideas even considered at the Federal Reserve and from your your former colleagues?
2: Yeah, so um, even before getting into cryptocurrency, I think, you know, those are two schools of thought in general about uh, how the economy works and the appropriate role of governments and central banks in managing the economy. And so I think within the Fed, you have Uh, economists on both sides of that issue. So like in um, the uh, economic research and literature, you might come across something called like the real business cycle that would argue that the business cycle really comes from uh, changes in productivity or underlying factors like labor and capital. And some would argue that the uh, real business cycle should be allowed to function uh, in sort of a unconstrained manner. So, you know, some people think of it as like laissez faire um, economics of sort of let the economy do what the economy is going to do, which I think would lean more uh, Austrian free markets. And then there are some economists who would take more of a Keynesian position of, you know, trying to um, provide economic stimulus during downturns and then also trying to uh, slow things down during an economic expansion to to smooth out the business cycle. And I think the the Fed has both types of economists. So one thing I appreciate about the Fed is that I think it does not – always thinks that more regulation or more uh, monetary control is always best. I think many of the economists that I know uh, are skeptical of government intervention because I think they're aware that there are a lot of unintended consequences. And so I think they, many of them start from the sort of initial perspective of, you know, if the market is working, let the market do what the market is going to do. But there's also, I think, an awareness that at times there are market externalities and there are um, incomplete markets and there are market frictions. And so they—they they, I wouldn't say that they either believe in perfect markets in the sense that capitalism can do no wrong and that's the Solution to every issue, and so they would argue that there is a role for the government to play, both in terms of regulation, setting the rules, but also in terms of monetary policy. And so, in terms of the you know the real theme of this podcast, I think in terms of monetary policy, uh, there is a Keynesian bent to the Fed, obviously because they. Uh, View the role of the central bank in sort of controlling the supply of money as being very important for managing the economy. Um, and so, you know, that, and so there's a whole line of research now that would be considered neo Keynesian, which would try and think about the role of uh, prices in the economy uh, and a central bank in sort of providing price stability. So I think in terms of their view on cryptocurrency, I think they would view that um, as a a negative for cryptocurrency that it does not allow for that type of monetary policy. So they would say, you know, in the current um, environment where we have, you know, an economy that can see these extreme booms and busts, that there is a need for central banks to provide price stability. And so the way to do that is to control the money supply. And so they would, I think, ultimately, you know, working for the Fed, believe that there is a role and an important role for central banks to play.
1: Yes, and you mentioned the work of some former colleagues of you regarding cryptocurrencies and blockchain. And there's uh, an economist at the Federal Reserve of St. Louis. Uh, he's called David Andolfato. And uh, he's, he's given some lectures and, and made some publications, which I find very interesting. And in his most recent one, I believe it was late last year, 2018 or early 2018, he concluded that cryptocurrencies, they're not only possible to coexist with central bank uh, fiat money, but also it's a desirable coexistence. Do you think this is a widespread view among central bankers if within the Fed or or outside? Uh, well, how, how do you think this, uh, this plays out?
2: Yeah, no, I think that is an interesting view. And I think, um, I'm not sure I could say for the system as a whole, but I think most uh, economists in the Fed who are... I guess, interested and even sympathetic to to cryptocurrency, I think, would take that view. Um, There are certainly a number of economists within the Fed system who still think that cryptocurrency uh, is like a Ponzi scheme or fraud. And so there's, there's plenty of economists, not just in the Fed, but elsewhere, who are very skeptical of cryptocurrency in general. So Among those, that group, I don't think they would really even think it's worth the time to even talk about these things. But um, among those who are interested in sympathetics, um, which there are many, I think they would take that view of these are are complementary rather than uh, substitutes. So, you know, I I know some of your listeners are probably... um, Uh, interested in cryptocurrency as uh, a currency that could potentially replace fiat currency. And, you know, no one knows the future. That's certainly one potential outcome. But I think most uh, economists in the Fed would not uh, view that as a likely outcome. And I don't think they would even view that as an ideal outcome. I think they would say that. Um, By having these currencies coexist, that allows uh, for both a currency like the U.S. dollar to have a managed money supply that can be adjusted depending on the state of the economy, and then cryptocurrency as kind of a form of private money, uh, typically in some form of fixed supply that could function for other purposes. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, this gets into interesting issues about international uh, monetary uh, flows and the international monetary system. And so, you know, one of the things I talk about in my classroom is, you know, we still, I think, treat the dollar as the global reserve currency, largely uh, due to the legacy of Bretton Woods. But uh, I think there is some question as to, you know, would it be better to have some currency that would have kind of more of a transcendent quality that would not be unique to one single economy or single central bank, but something like a Bitcoin that could be used across uh, across different currency
0: systems, I do want to get more into uh, you know some of the thoughts that your students are having and and how uh, you know excited or um, you know scientific they may or may not be getting with Bitcoin, uh, but a, a few more maybe broad uh, global questions like the one that that you've just been talking about. Uh, there was a recent survey uh, that I saw; is, it was uh, quite interesting. I didn't digest the whole thing, but it was. Um, it was a survey uh, to sixty some central banks in the world. It was done by the BIS. I'll just read a, an abstract of it, uh, and, and I'm actually going to read it from our friends at Massari because I think it was pretty good. Just want to get your thoughts. So this is some sixty some central banks that cover you know ninety percent of economic output. So I guess I should say as well the, the the question that the survey was about was what do central banks think about their own uh, digital currencies. Um, whether wholesale or, um, you know, general sort of retail ones like the uh, e-peso. And the general thought was something that I would personally agree with because I think this would be a long way off, but I wonder your thoughts. The general thought was it says um, 85% of investigating central banks are unlikely to launch a CBDC, that's a central bank digital currency, uh, in the next decade. And then another takeaway, you know, regardless of uh, the motivations, the general stance on central banks on digital currency issuance is one of skepticism, collaboration, and caution. What do you think about some of those ideas? Do you think, uh, do you think it's, it's, it's quite a long way off for central banks to issue their own sort of digital currency? And do you think that will even happen?
2: Yeah, so I think that's an interesting idea. I'm, you know, I think it's good that we're getting more survey information on this because i think central banks in general are cautious by nature that's certainly true of the fed you know they um one way to think about central banks is you know i think they do kind of manage downside risk more so than focus on upside potential and so i think they uh many central banks want they don't want to stifle innovation but i think they uh, also don't want to sort of get ahead of themselves and and necessarily try to, to do things that, that might be a little bit risky. And so, you know, I, I am not surprised that central bankers uh, are saying, you know, this is not something that's going to happen in the near term. But I, I think it's important to uh, distinguish what exactly people mean by central bank digital currency, um, because I think it, there are actually a couple different ideas out there yep. um, related that kind of fall into that category. So I think you know some people think of it as you know what would it mean for a central bank to issue a digital currency that you know would have more of the flavor of a Bitcoin or Ethereum. And um, but and I think that would be the idea of like a central bank-backed digital currency, but it would still not be like managed by the central bank. So some people think of it as like some, maybe something that would have some fixed supply, but there would be like a central bank backstop um because there are some central banks that you know that have talked about creating some entirely new digital currency that would be unrelated to their existing fiat currency um potentially you know as a way even to for you know to raise funds you know some some of this is more so in the emerging markets um and i think people are very skeptical of that idea because you know central banks uh, I think our, there's a what we would call like a time in, inconsistency problem where you know if you launch something and you say hey we're not going to manage this but then things get sort of shaky then it's very likely that the central bank would come in and start to manage it so I think um, I think we need cryptocurrency in the, that more sort of fixed supply sense to exist outside the central banking system because it just doesn't fit the philosophy and mandate of central banks. But there is a an, another aspect of it, which I think is not as well understood or talked about, which is sort of a digital version of fiat currency. Uh, so the, the example that I'm most familiar with is uh, in Sweden, the Swedish central bank, the Riksbank, is uh, publicly exploring the idea of something they would call the e-krona, which would be the electronic version of the Swedish krona. And um, we had one of their uh, deputy governors come and speak uh, here in Chicago, Cecilia Skingsley, and she articulated that the the real concern in Sweden Is not so much like the role of the central bank in terms of managing money supply, but more so just the change in the nature of cash. So, they, you know, Sweden, I think, is among almost all the economies in the world moving more and more to becoming a truly cashless society. I think now about 95% of uh, transactions uh, are done in electronic payments. And so people simply aren't using physical Krona anymore. And uh, so the the central bank is talking about issuing a digital Krona, uh, but it, it's still the same currency, but really in a different form. And the, the more I've uh, tried to understand this, I think the, the rationale that she gave is their concern is the uh the swedish payment system is almost entirely uh functioning uh based on the swedish banking system and so you know in order to purchase goods and services you need some sort of bank account and the swedish banking system is relatively concentrated with among a few banks and so the concern among the central bank there is that these uh commercial banks may have um, sort of too much influence on the payment system. They might they might, and could potentially start to uh, exercise some monopoly power and maybe charging increasing transaction fees and then people might be stuck. They might be not really have an outside option, which is what cash has traditionally functioned as. And so this would be a central bank digital currency, kind of like an account that you could load on your phone Uh, And it would kind of be like a bank account with the central bank so that then you could pay with these digital units of currency, kind of like you would pay with physical units of cash as an alternative to a commercial bank account. And so what's interesting about that is it's, it's still disintermediation in the traditional sense of crypto of how do we have money without the banking system, but it is still a form of money that is directly being managed by a central bank. And so it it provides this interesting kind of third category.
0: Yeah, it is indeed interesting. And uh, I think there's a lot of ways we could go with this topic. I do want to tease it out a bit more because, um, yeah, I mean, in the Baltics, Swedish banks are very concentrated here. My travels to Sweden and Norway uh, definitely notice that they are trying to go more cashless uh, almost everywhere you go. In fact, you need to pay with a card. And then how that relates to this sort of third rail, as you said, of uh, a central bank sort of managed digital uh, currency I think is interesting because there's headwinds on the other side. You know, Fernando has, has pointed this out to a few of our guests uh, before. It was probably a different level of technology, but the Bank of England forever, basically, was offering uh, sort of retail-based services to their uh, employees at the central bank. And then I think um, a couple of years ago, they closed that because they uh, just realized it wasn't sort of worth uh, competing. And that's very interesting to see basically the complete opposite decision, whether it's right or wrong, cash leaving society is a good or bad thing, whether the technology is sound or not. It's very interesting to see that other central banks, such as the Scandics, are actually approaching this in the complete opposite way. They're trying to uh, have the central bank sort of, you know, use this technology in a very broad way across um, society. It's an interesting trend, and I'm not sure again how quickly a central bank could roll this out. I think it's better in smaller countries. It's more uh, apropos, you know. I, I was. Joking about with Mark Yusko on our last show that you know I, the general idea of of a central bank digital currency or a central bank managed digital currency beyond the fact that they're already digital anyway and you know the central bank will step in anyway you know if you're really going to up the game as sort of a technological thing and put in some distributed decentralized pieces to the system in my opinion there's probably a lot of technological risks that the bank might not be ready to open themselves up to. Just like what happened with the US, you know, with uh, the whole healthcare uh, debacle. I mean, running a healthcare website did not prove to be that effective from the government's perspective. So I'll sort of leave it there with a lot of points.
2: Yeah, no, I, I do think that's interesting. And in particular, from the perspective of like how egalitarian, how fair is our payment system, and is that potentially moving in the wrong direction? So, you know, one of the issues that's uh, being discussed here in the U.S. with uh, becoming more cashless, especially in some urban markets, is a number of retailers have now, uh, as you were mentioning, like in some of your experience there in Europe, they require a card and will not take cash. And so, you know, there's a number of, um, restaurants and coffee shops, even here in Chicago that have gone cashless. And so if you walk into that, uh, restaurant with a $20 U S federal reserve note, they will not take it and they can refuse your service because they don't accept that form of payment. Um, and this is, uh, you know, I think has been, accepted so far because, uh, you know, people would argue that there's a number of reasons for that. Some of the restaurant owners have said, you know, that reduces their, uh, risk of, uh, theft. You know, there's, there's no cash on site. And so there's no reason to be, um, uh, for criminal activity. I think it can also reduce like, uh, any sort of employee misbehavior of, uh, siphoning cash. And so, you know, arguably it makes it safer and more transparent. But one of the issues that I think has not been discussed enough is, um, what are the implications for those who may not have a bank account, you know, and the, the unbanked, uh, segment of our population, you know, if they don't have a debit card or credit card, then they cannot, um, participate or they cannot uh, uh, purchase at these restaurants. And so my understanding is that there is now a legal case in the U.S. of one of these vendors that's being sued because the the challenge is, you know, the U.S. dollar is legal tender. It should be allowed to be used at all locations. And so uh, cryptocurrency, I think, also raises Interesting issues about is it potentially serving a segment of our society that's gradually being marginalized by uh, the electronic payment system? You know, here in Chicago, you often see still, you know, cash is king when it comes to, you know, small transactions on the street with smaller vendors. And it's just, it's still. Sort of the, the the system of payments for people um, who don't sort of interact in the, the the digital space. And so, what's interesting is, you know, one of my um, good friends here in Chicago is a co-founder of a Bitcoin ATM network, where you know users can trade or exchange uh, cash. For Bitcoin. And what they've been surprised to find is that a large segment of their users are, are people who, who are in more, uh, I guess, parts of Chicago that you wouldn't necessarily expect, expect sometimes people, when they think about cryptocurrency, they think about the most affluent, the most tech savvy, and they assume that it's these sort of, um, the upper echelons of society who are using crypto, but in many ways, here in Chicago it's people on the south side, which tends to be lower income, also tends to be more diverse it's and and these are the the people that seem to have demand for alternative systems of payment and so um it's I think cryptocurrency in general raises interesting issues and coming back to Fernando's point about complementarity. I think it might, you know, serve some parts of our society that in a way that, uh, you know, the electronic payment system is not.
0: Hey, everybody, just want to take a moment to tell you about our product sponsor for this episode, Crypto Tradesmith. If volatility and FOMO is just too much for you, Crypto Tradesmith will help. By signing up for Crypto Tradesmith, you'll get risk management tools and over 50,000 trading pairs to help you manage your portfolio. Price your portfolio in dollars, price it in Bitcoin, price it in Litecoin, as you wish. You'll get custom email and text alerts when a volatile point or trailing stop is triggered. You'll also get access to Dr. Richard Smith's proprietary green, yellow, red light indicators, and a ton of other great tools such as portfolio risk analyzer and rebalancer. This is risk management software. This is not day trading software. It's amazing. We endorse it. And by the way, if you use it, you can manage big picture Bitcoin portfolio strategies like stop loss and buy orders completely off book. Your exchange will never know what your strategy is. So it tandems very well with managing your own keys, which you should do. So sign up right away on our special offer page, cryptovoices.com slash trade Cryptovoices.com slash trade offer. You'd be helping the show out, cannot endorse the product highly enough. And also check out episode 55 where we interview the founder of Trade Stops and Crypto Trade Smith, Dr. Richard Smith.
1: This is a fascinating discussion and uh Uh, But I I wanted to go back to a point you touched upon earlier regarding the perhaps need of an international means of payment that doesn't have the mark of any national government and Bitcoin or something like it potentially could play this role. Because uh, when we analyze the current monetary order, uh, there seems to be a rough consensus that the system itself needs some kind of reformation and i quote two prominent figures Uh, in 2010 mervyn king the former uh, governor of the bank of england in i think was the the buttonwood conference organized by the british uh, magazine the economist and he said he he said something uh, and I, i quote him literally of all the ways of organizing banking the worst is the one we have today, unquote. And then in 2014, at the Bretton Woods conference, Paul Volcker, in a speech titled, A New Bretton Woods? He was also saying that the system we have today needs some kind of reformation, but there's no consensus or not even suggestions of how the systems could be reformed. So, how do you see the current monetary system, and how, especially in terms of international payments and transfers, and how something like Bitcoin or perhaps even gold, as it was in the past, or something that perhaps we don't even know that might come along the way?
2: Yeah, no, I think this is a, a great topic for thinking about cryptocurrency because I think sometimes when people think about, you know, can Bitcoin be a currency, they immediately think about you know will should people be using it to buy pizza or a cup of coffee but you know i think the direction we're headed is likely to see bitcoin more so as this like international reserve currency this this issue that you're bringing up because when i think about the history of money and the international financial system. You know, if you think about the Bretton Woods Agreement in uh, following World War II, you know, it was really about how do we bring stability to the exchange rate system? And the idea was to create these relatively fixed exchange rates to the dollar and then peg the dollar to gold so that ultimately, gold would function as this uh, anchor of value to the international system, and then the U.S. dollar, as sort of the post-World War II victor, the global superpower, would provide this uh, stability th- throughout the the uh, network of the, the allies. But uh, you know, as I think you've talked about on this show before, when Richard Nixon went off the gold standard in the nineteen seventies and the dollar became a true fiat currency with floating exchange rates. You know, we now have a system, uh an international monetary system of floating or flexible exchange rates. And there's I think different ways of viewing that. Uh you know, in in one sense, uh it can be viewed very positively because now exchange rates are really market prices that are determined by supply and demand, and less so by government policy and so from that perspective, you could say that the current monetary system has become more capitalized uh more capitalist, it is less managed by government policy through exchange rates um, pegs or managed floats. And so, you know, I view that as arguably a positive development. Um, However, the concern is, you know, is there still a central point of reference? And without having this anchor or this peg to gold, and I think in many ways, that is the role of the US dollar as a reserve currency. And, And I think that is where I have some concern because the U S dollar is relatively stable. We are still, you know, the largest developed economy. And, you know, I think the, the, the federal reserve has, you know, through implementing a 2% inflation target has managed to keep the dollar relatively stable. Um, but, we still, the U.S. dollar is the sovereign currency of the United States of America. It is not the global currency. And so one of the fascinating issues that I think came up in the kind of post-crisis period was, you know, as the Fed was uh, lowering interest rates and incre- expanding the money supply, uh, the the question was raised of, you know, well, this is clearly what the U.S. needs for, based on the, the weakness in the U.S. economy and low U.S. inflation. But is this necessarily good for the global economy? Uh, and and so I think, um, you know, Raghuram Rajan, the, the economist at the University of Chicago, who then went on to become the governor of the Royal Bank of India, then raised the question, well, when the Fed started raising rates, And, you know, trying to slowly drain liquidity in the U.S. system and slow down the U.S. expansion and, um, you know, the tapering, if you recall, the end of quantitative easing in the U.S., there was a lot of concern about the implications of tapering for emerging markets because as rates began to rise in the U.S., there was a sort of this capital flight out of the emerging markets, in particular Brazil, uh, as it flowed back in the U.S., I believe that president Brazil at the time referred to it as a, a giant sucking sound. Um, and so then the, the concern was, well, now Fed policy is potentially causing this instability in emerging markets. Should the Fed incorporate that in their decision making? Should they sort of think about, well, you know, yes, this decision might be best for the U.S., but it might not be best for everyone else. So maybe we should think about this as more like our, not just our U.S. constituents, but our global constituents. And the the Fed position was very clear of, we are the central bank of the United States. Our mandate is to manage the U.S. economy. And so Federal Reserve monetary policy is you know if it has negative effects on other economies, too bad and so um which I totally get because you know that's you wouldn't it's they're not the global central bank, they're the u s central bank, but if the u s dollar is going to function as this global currency, then what's best for the u s may not be best for everyone else, and so if the value of the dollar fluctuates that can have negative implications for other economies. And I think another analogy to this that may be even more direct is the euro and the eurozone in Europe. You know, the, the the ECB is trying to set policy that is good for all of these countries as a whole, but sometimes what's best for Germany is not what's best for Greece, but they're now under the same Uh, currency. And so the ECB's monetary policy has to sort of manage that as a whole. Well, we don't have a global central bank. And so it's not clear that the U.S. dollar is really um, always best suited to be the global reserve currency because the changes in the value of the dollar aren't always what's needed for the global economy as a whole.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a fascinating subject. And, and I do remember back then, I think it was 20, 2008 and 2009, I was uh, living in Dubai. So this, this was early 2008, so before the, the Lehman moment. And I remember back then, so most of the Gulf currencies, they are pegged to the US dollar. And because the dollar was getting weaker back then, so before Lehman, the dollar was getting weakened, Uh, week, uh, most of the country, they were discussing whether it was time to DPEG and to move away from the dollar. So, uh, but, uh, I mean, this is just more of a comment than a question, but it it brings some very interesting uh, questions because... The even though the US dollar is not a global money, I mean, it's not a, it's not a, the Federal Reserve is not the central bank of the world. The US dollar is the de facto unit of account of the whole world. So everything is priced in dollars. And whenever the dollar moved, moves in price, it affects everyone. So.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And so, you know, central banks holding reserve currency, um, you know, is a major. Uh, factor and why the the U.S. dollar has maintained that position, but also, like, I, and I think maybe you've talked about this. You know, the pricing of oil and Brent crude in U.S. dollars as the unit of of account, that then creates this correlation between the strength of the dollar and the price of oil. So you know, the Federal Reserve monetary policy, exactly. Yeah, Federal Reserve monetary policy just doesn't just affects sort of the price of goods and services within the U S that it affects the entire global commodities market. And, um, you know, it's, it's not clear that that's really what it's designed to be. You know, you know, some people like the idea of, you know, having a central bank that sort of, uh, has that level of influence because then if things start to go poorly, then there's, someone to turn to, you know, obviously the Federal Reserve and and now other central banks uh implemented what would be considered unconventional monetary policy and you know, you might recall Mario Draghi during the sovereign debt crisis saying we will do whatever it takes. You know, that provides a a backstop to financial markets. During periods of crisis, and so some people view that as a good thing, which I I think it can be. But then, uh, during normal times, the these policies can can exert uh, too much influence. I think on financial markets, many people would now say that the U.S. stock markets uh, is being overly influenced by Federal Reserve policy, and so. Uh, thinking about asset prices, um, you know, there's a lot of concern now about what people would call the macro prudential implications of monetary policy and financial markets. Did the low interest rates uh, in 2004 through 2007 potentially contribute to um, the financial crisis in the US? And so monetary policy can also inflate financial prices. And, uh, this, I think many market participants would argue that we, the U S has become too much like a managed economy based on this sort of, uh, influence of the fed that, you know, this stocks in the U S rise and fall as a whole based on interest rate policy rather than really focused on things like corporate earnings. And so, you know, the Muhammad O'Larian um, uh, who is, I think, a fairly well-known economist, formerly economist of PIMCO, has uh, this book titled The Only Game in Town, where he sort of argues that central banks and central bank policy has now come to dominate financial markets as a whole. And I think he would view that as a as a problem. You know, Are we still living in a capitalist free market society if asset prices are simply rising and falling based
0: on this form of government policy. I want to um, move on then to maybe how Bitcoin can fit into this, and, and what you personally think. But before we do that, I have one quick side question uh, regarding inflation, and and it's it's always interesting. We, we ask some different economists this question because uh, you know the Austrians, which uh, I think, admittedly, are are pretty far from mainstream, and and not necessarily gathering many followers or at least not close to the proportion of, you know, economists, as you mentioned, you know, sort of mainstream or Keynesian or Neo-Keynesian uh, economists that might be with the Fed. There's always this very interesting thing when we talk about in- inflation and, and we do a uh, an analysis of the monetary base comparing Bitcoin to, to other monetary bases across the world. But just the very quick question regarding inflation. Do you think the Austrians just have have sort of lost the battle of the word inflation? (laughs) Because they used to say, and I think they still say, that inflation means the increase in the stock of money. And it seems that really no one cares about that anymore. And if if we do want to address it, what do they even call it at the Fed? Is it just called money growth or money supply growth? Because it seems pretty clear that the mainstream of economics, and I think that's fine, I mean, it's just the way the lexicon has gone, is when you talk about inflation, you talk about that, as you mentioned, that 2% inflation target. And the money growth can be quite different than that. So how do you distinguish between price inflation and money growth inflation?
2: Yeah, so I th- I do think that the you know common definition now would be inflation would be a growth in prices and you know growth changes in prices are not just a function of monetary policy they're also a function of economic agents banks and also just uh people in the economy and so you know typically people would talk about like some concept like money velocity, sort of how quickly is it being circulated or used or money demand. Um, And so, you know, part of what I talk about in my class, and I think you've touched on, which is, and I think Fernando's made this point of, you know, the Fed controls the monetary base, but not the total uh, money supply, because money supply is also a function of how money is being used and circulated. And so, you know, if you look at the history of the Fed and monetary policy, there was actually that was part of the transition from targeting money supply to targeting interest rates. Yep. And so, you know, money supply, if you think about like M1 or M2, can be very difficult not only to measure, but especially to manage since they don't really have f- full control over it. And so, as they have shifted towards interest rates. I think that's given them more direct influence over the monetary base. But I guess the last comment, um, in terms of your question about, uh, money growth and inflation, they're certainly, uh, correlated. And so, you know, especially like in many emerging economies, when you see, you know, massive expansion of the money supply, you see very rapid, uh, inflation or even hyperinflation. Zimbabwe is a great example of that. Um, but in the US i would say in the post crisis period when we had extreme expansion of the money supply and the massive inflation of the US uh, fed balance sheet we did not see inflation rise as dramatically as we thought and so i think one of the kind of a puzzle i think still in the economic circles is in the last 10 years where we've had massive monetary expansion across uh, almost all the developed economies, we have not seen dramatic rises in inflation and in some cases even concerns about deflation uh, that, you know, it's been a recurring issue in Japan and was even a topic of discussion for a few years here in the U.S. Uh, And so some critics of the Fed were sort of shaking their fists saying, you know, all these things that you did, this is going to create massive inflation. It's going to just come out of nowhere and take us by surprise, but we just haven't seen it. And in fact, even right now, you know, there was the talk about the Fed, how many times is the Fed going to raise rates in 2019? A lot of that's going to depend on inflation and inflation just continues to be, stay relatively low and modest. And so uh, it hasn't necessitated a, a a significant tightening of monetary policy.
0: Yeah, indeed. And I think, um, you know, the reasons for those uh, effects, maybe beyond the scope of the show just right now, you know, we talk about interest on reserves and all these other things uh, that that affect it. But, um, so I guess my follow-up to that would be, I could put it the way um, Steve Hanke said, we actually interviewed him um, uh, at the end of last year, and he calls uh, the monetary base... um, you know, as we define it here, he calls that state money, and then you know you have bank money, uh, which is as you mentioned, you know M one, M two, so on and so forth. And the monetary base uh, we have pretty pretty accurate measurements on. At least you know ninety three percent of GDP is uh, it comes to about twenty trillion. So twenty trillion would be would be state money, and then we have uh, bank money, which is much larger worldwide. I'm not exactly sure the measurement. I'd like to continually uh, fi- uh, hone in on that number myself, but uh, I think. Uh, professor Hanke was me- measuring tw- a 2080 split so let's just say it's 80 trillion for the sake of argument so it's 20 trillion in state money 80 trillion in in bank money around the world obviously these are just very big broad macro numbers but long term bringing it back to bitcoin i mean how do you think bitcoin could interact <laughs> with those two metrics i mean we have we have state money which is controlled primarily by you know the fed the ecb Bank of Japan and Pebach, uh, and then you have you know banks around the world creating credit. and then you just have this thing Bitcoin. I mean, how do, how would you describe the relationship that it could be in the future between between the monetary base and, and bank money and then uh, you know digital currency? Yeah, so I think
2: you know when i I uh, assign the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper to my students and we talk about it in class, and I think part of why I like to uh, discuss that is that I think the introduction to the Bitcoin white paper is fascinating because, you know, it was you know released uh, late 2008 during the heart of the financial crisis, clearly just after the bankruptcy of Lehman. And so it was a period where there was, um, I think, rising concerns about the stability of the banking system. And also the beginning of a period of massive monetary expansion, as we were just talking about. And so also, I think some questions about the um, stability of of fiat currency. And so all of that, I think, comes back to this issue of trust. And I think, uh, you know, fiat currency is a system of trust. You know, we put our trust in the faith and credit of a sovereign nation and and their ability to tax uh and support that currency, so you know you know many people I think are now very comfortable with the idea of fiat currency because for a number of generations that's just what we've used, and so people view that as very normal, but to the extent that people ever lose trust. In a currency, then I think the value of that currency can change very rapidly. Uh, you know, I don't think we've really seen that in a country like the United States for a number of decades. You know, if you it, you would have to go back to really the like the 1970s or early 80s to see double-digit inflation. And so, you know, we've had very low, stable inflation in the U.S. Uh, One term used here would be the great moderation uh, over recent decades. And so uh, I think that's where in countries like the U.S., Bitcoin is still considered um, either a curiosity or like an investment, like an alternative asset class for U.S. investors. But I think in many other economies, uh, when there are periods of instability and doubts which is would be the opposite of trust when there are doubts raised about the stability or viability of the local currency then i think bitcoin provides a very important outside option uh, in particular as a store of value and so you know some of my uh work and and some of the uh, the projects my students have worked on are looking at periods of financial instability uh, you know, Venezuela would clearly be a case right now of uh, an economy that's in freefall, and, and and also a, uh, a a currency that's in freefall. Then, where do people turn to to store value? And I think in some situations in the past, it's been trying to put that money into real assets like real estate or other physical durable goods. Uh, in the, the history of investing, you know, many people have talked about gold as that type of reserve currency, but I think Bitcoin potentially has the potential to become that outside option when people lose trust in um, a fiat currency, and so it's almost like a, the irony of you know the motivation for Bitcoin is a trustless system of payments. Uh, but it's when you, when you are in a period of of doubt and losing trust, then you sort of want a system that doesn't rely on any third party or any governance because you're you're not sure you you believe in any of those systems anymore. And so, you know, I view the potential of Bitcoin going forward as this kind of global reserve currency to become potentially like a form of digital gold or this uh, safe haven. Uh, I, I think people are skeptical of that right now, due, given the, the price fluctuations and the, the rapid decline in prices uh, this year and, and last year. But um, in the long term, that's sort of my long term outlook for Bitcoin is once it stabilizes, and I don't know exactly what level that will be, but I I do foresee at some point some stability. I think it will function as this sort of uh, uh, place in which those people who are losing faith in their fiat currency can turn to as an outside option. And I think that's very important because, you know, in the history of private money, that's... The idea is like, I don't want the value of my assets, whether that's, uh, securities or cash to be susceptible to somebody else deciding what this thing is worth. And so the value of, of a uh, cryptocurrency is that there is no central banking, banker who can then sort of, uh, uh, rapidly expand the, the supply and devalue that currency.
1: Well, these are great points, uh, Lamont, and I, I think I agree with all of them. Uh, but it's of, it's, of course, very difficult for us to put a, a more correct timing on that. But I, I do foresee the same development. But uh, going back to, to the present day and perhaps the next few years, you mentioned the book of Mohammed el arian the only game in town, which is... I haven't read it yet. I, I bought it, but I haven't read it, but I know the gist of the argument. And I think he's definitely right. I mean, Nowadays, uh, central banks and monetary policy, it has such a dominant uh, role in financial markets that it's... Uh, I see people... Uh, Every week, people are saying, and analysts and investors saying, well, the next crisis is going to be the worst. Just this morning, I read, uh, the I think it was Ray Dalio in Davos. He was saying that, well, the next recession is is going to be the worst. And it scares me uh, more than anything. But since central banks are playing such a dominant role right now, and because they have such a, a tremendous grip on financial markets, I have the the impression that once a crash hits, that central banks will step in much earlier than than previously, and avoid any kind of tremendous crash or even a, a. a recession in, in in the economy. So there's there's possibility that we're gonna have even in the US. Well we had in Japan what they call the the Japanization of financial markets. So do you think this is also a possibility? Do you view do you have the same view that it might happen in the US once a much anticipated crash comes?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, a great question and I do think that would happen. Um you know I think Many of the policies of the Federal Reserve and other central banks, the ECB, Bank of Japan, were, during the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, were viewed with surprise and almost shock of, you know, can central banks really do that? Um, But I think over time, over the last 10 years, some of those policies have slowly normalized where, you know, quantitative easing is now a household term and people, I think, would be less surprised to see that come back. Uh, and I think some of the, the central bank governors and presidents have even talked about, you know, their ability to use quantitative easing again in the future. And so now that those toolkits have been used and developed, uh, I think, you know, they w- like you said, they would be even more quickly deployed in the event of a financial crisis. Um, but i i view that as sort of a, a catch 22 uh you know in this from the standpoint of short term stability uh i think these tools can be very useful and sort of uh providing a liquidity backstop to the financial system to prevent fire sales and other sort of um externalities that can occur uh during financial turmoil and so again this is why some people view central banks as necessary and even beneficial is their ability to provide support during troubled times but um another article i read recently about china was saying, you know, you know, the Chinese economy is slowing. You know, at a six and a half percent growth rate, they're now, you know, at at levels we haven't seen for almost a decade. And so, if the China Chinese economy continues to slow, what are the potential implications of that? Not just for the global economy, but also for financial stability, because some people would argue that the Chinese economy is being supported. On a system of credit both through their uh, official government channels and through their banking system and the people's Bank of Ch- china's uh, monetary stimulus and so um, the the concern is if central banks provide this backstop like when things start to 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 get shaky then the central bank will step in to provide that that support one of the common phrases used in the U.S. now for that sort of general principle is the Greenspan put, the idea that, you know, Alan Greenspan, whenever markets started to sell off, he would either lower rates or refrain from raising rates to provide a little more stimulus. And so it's this like central banks provide this form of insurance. But the the concern, I think, that people are starting to recognize more now is that that Monetary stimulus can also prevent a form of um, uh, economic cleansing. Uh, and, and so uh, I think a very interesting com, com, uh, idea that goes back to the econ, uh, economist Schumpeter is the phrase creative destruction, where, and I think this would be kind of an Austrian idea that part of the business cycle in an economic downturn is the failure of you know systems and uh, firms that were not performing that they those things need to die so that new ideas and and new companies can be born but if if our central banks are providing this backstop that allows the old system to sort of hobble through and survive that may actually weaken Future growth, and so one of the topics that's been a big uh, point of discussion at the Fed and other areas is the the weak economic recovery in the U.S. following the financial crisis. And so many people, you know, would say in previous recessions there's sort of a V shape where the economy takes a steep dive but then quickly recovers. But then what we saw in the U.S. in 2010, 11, and 12 was a relatively slow recovery that some people would blame on all the monetary response to the crisis that because central banks stepped in to provide this backstop and protection, that we didn't get that economic cleansing, creative destruction. And therefore you get just the old economy continuing to to slog along. And so coming back to your comment about Davos and whether we're going to see a, a global recession potentially later this year or in 2020, uh, my concern is that the central banks pull out all these tools that may prevent massive declines in financial markets, but it may also prevent sort of a healthy recycling of the global economy that we need to, to sustain future growth.
0: Great points. Uh, Lamont, I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, we're, we're, we're running a bit long here, and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, uh, you know, a bit more about your classes and your students uh, I think it's really interesting that you uh, are are uh, discussing Bitcoin and crypto with your students. So I think it's probably a last question. Can you just tell us a few few points, you know, about your students? I, I love the comment that you know they were more and more bringing uh, bringing Bitcoin to you. Uh, I heard this as well from some other professors on our show. You know, any interesting theses that they're coming up with? Any interesting uh, data points? that you guys are talking about. How has it been like doing uh, Bitcoin and crypto on the on the university level?
2: Yeah, so that's, that's one of the joys of being a professor is getting to work with young people who are coming at this with fresh eyes and new ideas. And so, you know, uh, I've now incorporated this into almost all of my mainline classes. And so, you know, I, I tell people, I used to just talk about Bitcoin on the last day, sort of, What's the future of money is kind of a fun thing to think about. But I now talk about it on day one because I think it is uh, a system that really challenges our ideas about about money. So rather than just saying, you know, is Bitcoin money? You know, I think one question is, does Bitcoin potentially redefine money? Um, and so it's something that I think is very useful in terms of education and just talking about these bigger principles. But then another thing is, you know, my students, I find term projects and many of them choose to work on topics related to Bitcoin because it's interesting to them. Uh, One of them early on was around this issue I was just describing where they looked at specific periods of instability. It wasn't just Venezuela. It was also looking at like the demonetization in India of uh, large paper bills. They were also looking at a period in China where the yuan was depreciating quite rapidly and people in China were trying to move money into Bitcoin. Um, Two other ones that I think have been themes that have come out recently. Uh, One is around the uh, introduction of Bitcoin futures. And so, you know, some of your listeners might be familiar that the um, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the CME group, and the Chicago Board Options Exchange, CBOE, introduced Bitcoin futures in uh, the end of 2017 in November, December uh, timeframe, which was also right around the peak of the price of Bitcoin. And so there's been a fair amount of discussion, uh, around whether the introduction of Bitcoin futures and the ability to short Bitcoin potentially, uh, brought about that, that change or whether that was what prompted the popping of the Bitcoin bubble. So, uh, that's been another interesting topic. Um, But then one that I I particularly liked was a group that looked at the history of Bitcoin prices and showed that this pattern of rapid spikes and then rapid declines uh, has repeated several times. This most recent episode in 2017, 2018 was by no means the first one, Uh, and so you know, some of that actually was related to the sovereign crisis uh, and the the banks in Cyprus as you know worried about worries about deposits uh, capture and and some people trying to move money into Bitcoin, and so these the, these patterns uh, have repeated over time, and so this is again part of what gives me confidence about the future of Bitcoin. I know this show isn't particular about. Uh, you know, looking at recent price action, but there there's there is a level of discouragement I think among the people I talk to here, saying you know you know with the rapid sell off and the, the decline in prices, some people have given up on Bitcoin. And uh, but I, I like to think of that famous quote um, uh, by Mark Twain that the, the rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated. Um, that you know I I kind of view this as I heard the phrase recently, like a crypto winter of you know I think there is a reassessment about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general. I think we're seeing a flushing out of some of that speculation, but back to this concept of like the long view my 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 view is as bitcoin stabilizes and we look more to the- like the five year horizon, I think that's ultimately gonna be good for this uh market because we need that type of stability to get to these deeper questions about reserve currencies and uh, stable stores of value. And so ultimately, in the long run, I think this, this what we're seeing right now could, could work for the best in terms of the long-term viability for crypto.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. And it's, uh, it's not the first crypto winter that Bitcoin's gone through. You know, 20, 2014, 2015 uh, was probably the first long one that we had. So um, that is very interesting to see how it will play out. Lamont, it's really been interesting. I, I uh, would love to have you back on the show because I think it's uh, you're bringing some interesting perspective. You know, from um, you're speaking our language with a lot of things, and I think that that's surprising to people for sure. With uh, you know, coming from a former Fed economist, which people just sort of don't don't look too nuanced more than they should. So, as we you know, as we close it for today, any closing thoughts? And uh, you know, where could our listeners uh, find out more about you?
2: Well, uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So uh, if people want to follow me on LinkedIn, I post a fair amount of um, my activity and and writings there. Um, And just, you know, I I would just encourage your listeners, um, those that are either of more of a libertarian perspective or maybe a more conservative perspective, you know, people often ask me, well, you know, where do you see this going in the next year? Do you think prices are going to come back up? You know, I view this, maybe it's the academic in me, but I just view this as like really a fascinating thought experiment. Um, You know, this is a totally different way of thinking about money. And so, you know, this type of conversation gets me energized because it gets into the realm of philosophy and political economy and, I get excited about, you know, could we see an entirely different way of organizing our international monetary system, like Fernando was talking about? And so uh, I view this type of dialogue and podcasts like this as an opportunity to share ideas. And so, You know, yeah, I think there's some discouragement right now, but I think the idea is strong enough that uh, I think it's going to produce some very interesting outcomes. So I'm excited to be part of it.
0: Yeah, that's good enough for me. Completely echo those sentiments. And um, the more that people in the space can hear from um, people outside of uh, of whatever that uh, sort of traditional Bitcoin ethos may be, uh, you know, people with with government experience, people with academic experience, it's only going to uh, broaden the base of understanding so really interesting interview Lamont thanks a lot for, uh, for joining us yeah we'll link to all that in the show notes and really appreciate you coming on hope to talk to you soon
1: sounds good thank you very much thank you very much Lamont
0: great and one more quick shout out to our mutual friend Ben Hines thanks a lot for the connection buddy